Happy Wednesday and welcome back to another exciting edition of the Rocketeer Minute where each and every day, Monday through Friday, we go over one minute of the greatest adventure movie Walt Disney has ever made, the 1991 Joe Johnston-directed movie, The Rocketeer. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I'm Hal Bryan from the Experimental Aircraft Association in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And here we are still watching the... The rumblings and uh, desperation of uh, Cliff Secord as he drives his wounded GB back toward uh, Chaplin Field while uh, Wilmer stuffs a vacuum cleaner inside of a case. That's, that's where we're at at the moment. It's a lot of lot of high drama, a lot of people with different destinations, uh, and it doesn't look like it's just going to end in any kind of uh, calm calm resolution. So as we as we join the action already in progress, uh, Cliff is coming in over the over the tree, tree line. Wilmer is stuffing his authorized personnel only case on top of Lenny as hard as he can. <laughs> right, back in the rumble seat. The FBI are closing in in their uh, their beat up Ford that's uh, well not not doing not doing too well. It's missing a missing a headlight. And uh, as I had said yesterday in uh, the previous minute, I was just checking for continuity and it does look like they they did met for one thing they did manage to get it out from between those two trees in rather record time i guess it has a good reverse and uh they're driving their battered their battered machine around the front of the hangar to cut wilmer off at the pass or something so he jumps in his car and rather than i would have thought backing up would have been the thing to do here at this point if he's planning on driving i w- i would guess that if he saw the fbi car going around the back of the hangar to the front the last place you want to go to the, be with the front of the hangar. So, but but really, what kind of a chase would that make? That's true. That's true. So, uh, so he gets out and goes zooming past, uh, uh, <laughs> past the FBI car, who apparently learned the trick about using uh, air uh, you know, airplane smoke. <laughs> there must be a, a half a gallon of soybean oil just poured over the the header on that car. Exactly, and that poor fender is just about to go at any minute. Yeah, yeah, and I I feel bad for the owners of the mystery plane and. And all the, the other rare craft watching these, watching these uh, uh, cars careen across the uh, the dirt road, I would be terrified. Uh, well, uh, probably only second second terror, uh, except to the uh, the the movies underwriters. I would think the air insurance guys would be a little bit. Yeah, worried. they'd be even more scared. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and it's interesting. Do we know who that is? Uh, who's running down the roof of the hangar? I'm guessing somebody who wasn't supposed to be in the frame. Very <laughs> <laughs> well could be. Although it almost looks like he could have been, you know, he's an observer. They've got that little station up there with the beacon. Yeah. Uh, and then you've got somebody else in his white uh, white jacket and cap there, right? At that that uh, little another little observation uh, observation building in front of the the Traveler Mystery Ship. Uh, now so. I'm I am not a big uh, uh, I don't have a great technical knowledge on uh, air airport beacons, but am I right in assuming that that the standard airport beacon is at the midline of the main runway? Is that where it's typically placed? Typically, yes, but there are you know there are exceptions to it, um, and uh, you know what was in this era in the you know late thirties we we had sort of two different kinds of beacons. You had your airport beacon. Which over the years we've standardized on color coding, and for the most part, if uh, if an airport is uh, is lighted, which means it's you, you can fly in at night and it's uh, it's land. It's not a it's not a lake to land in in a seaplane. You have a rotating beacon that alternates white and green, and you could spot those from miles away. And uh, and yes, they're sort of usually standardized somewhere center point of the biggest runway. 
but really what it's about it's more of a binary thing it's like you're you're looking to find the airport at night and once you see that green and white then you know that's where the whole airport is and then you sort of you're working your way in from there you know the other kind of uh, beacons we had at the time uh in, still in the 30s uh, late 30s was the airway beacon when those were out uh just scattered in big lines uh, and routes across the country so that pilots flying at night could sort of navigate somewhat visually by flying from beacon to beacon, but they weren't necessarily associated with an airport. But they were much brighter and tended to shine uh, shine more straight up and that sort of thing. Were they just white lights? I mean, did they have any color to them? Or? I believe that they were just white, but uh, but I I cannot say that one for sure. Uh, the uh, we're back looking at uh, the front of the front of the uh, uh, the Bigelow hangar here where. Uh, we can see on the left is the Curtis uh, logo, and then on the right, the Pratt and Whitney. Yeah, that great uh, Pratt and Whitney wing. Of course, that's the that's the engine in uh, in Cliff's GBs, the Pratt and Whitney R nine eighty five. And by the way, we were talking a little bit about oil yesterday, and and one thing that I hadn't really considered is that where this was the first uh, the first flight of the GB, and as we can see, it's not not going all that well. Yeah, and the last <laughs> could be. <laughs> yes, probably the one and only flight of this particular airplane, but we'll see. Uh, what they really would have been using for the first so 50 hours or so as they're breaking it in, they would have been using uh, um, actually a mineral oil. Uh, so it's got sort of stronger, thinner, but uh, uh, sort of gets better into sort of the nooks and crannies to provide overall lubrication as you're breaking in the engine before you went to a heavier weight. Oh, okay. So, right. and we were talking 30 weight uh, yes, uh, yesterday, and I think most radial engines today would, you you would use substitute something like a modern like 25, 25 to thirty. Got it. Yeah. Wow. We're watching uh, watching some very slow motion stunt driving here. Uh, a lot of a lot of turning and weaving as right. <laughs> poor Cliff is turning and weaving trying to line up on the final there, missing the runway pretty bad. Well, considering that the the plane is really just uh, dying pretty hard. And this, as you as, as we've talked about several times, the GB is an incredibly difficult uh, plane to control. Right, especially once it's been shot up, or you know, yeah. so I've heard. <laughs> and, yeah, put a, uh, put a couple of half inch wide bullets through it, and it'll right. <laughs> it'll misbehave. Exactly. Uh, he does. He does at least get it lined up longitudinally. I mean, he not he might not be over the center line. But he's just at least he's not going to hit a he's not going to hit a hanger. Or, but there are some. There's some. But there uh, are some obstacles. Yeah, yeah. So here comes a uh, slalom flying. We we watch uh, uh, Fitch, Fitch and Wooly uh, jump out of their car or what's left of it, and uh, Fitch pulls out his revolver and he's going to take out with uh, with a revolver. He's going to take out Wilmer as best he can. But apparently he right. just wings him in the shoulder. You know, there's a. Uh, I've got the minute open on my screen here, and it just happened to be paused at second. Uh, 20 and you've got uh just this perfectly iconic close-up shot of fitch he's you know he's he's got his head tilted just so his left eye is closed the fedora is at just the right angle and everything and it's just this is just a random frame where i stopped and everything about this tells me so much uh you know i, I could tell you a lot about this scene if you only showed me this one frame of yeah yeah good old he, g-man uh, g-man fitch he does have i mean this is he's not doing the you know the the improper uh, uh, gun gun control that he uh, you know that you see in so many. He's not holding it sideways. He's not he's right. not uh, fanning the 
uh, fanning the trigger. So he's, he's not, he's actually holding it like someone of the era would be using a, a, a firearm. So. Yeah, that's exactly right. The way this uh, left hand is over the right, the way it's braced, how high the webbing of his thumb is up close to the, the hammer of the back of the thirty-eight. This looks to me like a guy who's probably properly shot a revolver like this before, but, uh, or he's yeah. been well, he's been well taught. But, yeah. uh, you know, the dominant eye open and tilted back, he's sighting down, he's not just pulling it from the hip. This is, you know, this is a well-trained G-man through and through. Yeah, we'll be, we'll be talking with one of the uh, technical advisors on, on this movie who made sure that people knew how to shoot what they were shooting uh, about an hour, about an hour's worth into this movie from now. So keep, stay tuned, and we'll, uh, we'll go into some more, some more details about how they learned to do these things just to make it look good on the movie and make it, and make it a, as accurate as Joe Johnson wanted them to be. Uh, he also has that pretty dapper fedora on. It's still, it's it's amazing the uh, the detail there. It's a, it looks like fresh out of the hat box. Yes, and the staying power of a good hat. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. You know, it's all in the starch. Poor Wilmer is is now dealing with a, uh, a shot through uh, shoulder <laughs> uh, shoulder bones, and uh, and then what should he see but Cliff coming at him face first? They're lined up at at opposite <laughs> opposite vectors. Right. And uh, I would have thought he would have. I guess. Waving him off is not an option here. This is, he's he's coming down and not doesn't have enough. Uh, his sink rate is too fast to to get back into the pattern. Wilmer does the only thing he can do, which I don't really understand why he can't just make a right turn. But he uh, he jumps out and uh, lands on that shoulder that just got shot. And then uh, then we see this just an incredible series of cuts here as uh, the car uh, nicks the. Uh, Nick nicks the uh, the right the right wheel, which uh, busts loose. Right, and uh, that is a flying plane. So I'm assuming that they had a breakaway. Uh, I mean, it doesn't look like it's hanging or anything. I'm, I'm looking for well, cables. I I think there there pretty much has to have been that this was a mock up on a wire. Um, I'm pretty convinced of that for a number of reasons. Um, like you said, if if it was something that flew. It uh, it would have to be breakaway have breakaway gear, but then we would have been talking about a giant scale RC model, and I don't see how we how they could line up like this. Well, it could be a I mean that could be a model car. This we, we might have the scale completely off here. This could be right. a you know a two foot long plane and a and a six inch long car or something. So uh, I'm I'm guessing it's a model. Hopefully someday in the future we can we can have somebody on that can that was there on site right, to can answer, talk about this. Answer definitively because I I still vote for uh, full size mock up on a cable, but uh, but we'll see. Yeah, and we're uh, and as as it goes past there, after he loses the right wheel, we watch the uh, you know Cliff landing as best he can with the uh, with the left wheel and grinding that propeller right into the right into the ground and striking up sparks to hide the rather obvious cable route that's uh, right in front of them. Right. It It's still, you know, as something that you're going to see on the movie screen and we're not, you're not watching this frame by frame, you know, you're not being, uh, it's not the Zapruder film when you're sitting in a theater. <laughs> exactly. You watch the plane auger in, wreck the, wreck the propeller, and we cut back to uh, what happens with Wilmer's car. It just happens to hit the only, the only gasoline truck in, you know, anywhere for miles around uh, and hits it rather spot on. There's a, uh, we've talked about this previously, but there's a in the IMDb goofs list. This is listed as the the uh, the gasoline truck exploding before the 
uh, before the car hits it, but I've looked at this several times and I do not see any lack of synchronization between the car hitting the truck and the tr- and the truck blowing up. It, it this is a really good a really good effect. Yeah, absolutely. And if if somebody really wants to sit and uh, and nitpick, it's sort of it's interesting that the first explosion, first hint of fire, seems to come from almost from the engine compartment of the fuel truck. But big deal. If that's the the worst we can come up with, we get a nice big fireball after that. And 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 as I agree with you completely, uh, unlike that ugly fight we had a few moments ago about the uh, model versus cable, our yeah. first our, our first argument, Jim. Uh, anyway, I agree with you completely. That timing, yeah. I I can't imagine how that could look uh, look any better or more dramatic. No, and I, I do like the uh, the mandatory stuntman running away uh, in the middle distance. That you know is, is part of every explosion. The only right. the only difference nowadays is this would be in super slow motion, and there'd be particles and all exactly. kinds of extra. CGI spray. He uh, might we, be tossing away a cigar as yeah. uh, as he ran away in slow motion, <laughs> but who knows? It's, so it, 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 does, it does come through good as a great practical mechanical effect. I mean, this is, there's no CGI in this. It's just it's just a beautiful piece of work on on the part of both the stuntmen and the uh, the effects guys uh, lighting up those squibs all over the place. So we we go back to the uh, the GB or which is now a uh, a glider, or a very low level glider. <laughs> And uh, it's uh, relying on ground effect to uh, get pulled along uh, by a cable as it's as it's burning. It's a pretty pretty good effect of of the burning. I don't, I'm not sure what they're using to keep the flames going, but very scary looking thing with uh, with Cliff there as they they cut back to Cliff in the cockpit with a fire raging in front of him. Right, and you know you talked about uh, the effect of the airplane being drug drug along, uh, you know as you said obviously by a cable. And, uh, you know, one minor thing, a, a few seconds back, uh, there's a little tire chirp when the, when his one remaining wheel, his left wheel first oh. touches. And of course, this is basically a dirt runway. So, yeah. you know, you don't get, uh, you don't get tire chirps there, but then it's interesting to me too. You've got that great shower of sparks coming out from underneath as it's, as it's being dragged along. But I also wonder you know, what, what exactly is causing, uh, is causing those. Maybe there's some, it, it's not necessarily friction on a, like you'd see on an asphalt runway, but maybe it's, uh. Uh, who knows? Maybe there's some magnesium components or something in there that are burning yeah, and cooking it, it off. It could be that the entire runway is built on a uh, a, a, a big nest of uh, flint, the big ridge of, of flint that runs down the entire that, length of the runway. But, that uh, very well could be. You know, during uh, World War II, we used temporary runways that were sort of a, uh, a steel mesh that then were filled in with dirt and laid over the top. So I don't, I don't think you would have seen something like that here, but it's not... It's extremely unlikely, but it's not entirely impossible that there could be some metal, uh, metal just sort of under the surface of this runway. But yeah, if anything, ga- gouging up piles of dirt, I think, would put the fire out. Right? Right, exactly. They they teach you that in flight training. I know that's something yeah. you're thinking about starting. Uh, Jim. So yeah, if the airplane's on fire, find a pile of dirt. <laughs> so we 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 watch uh, Cliff struggling to get out of the GB, and then uh, we see uh, PV running across to to let him out, and we notice that. Uh, PV is uh, running a little gingerly as he's getting across the runway. The, the reason behind that is that Al, Alan Arkin suffered an injury from that very same cable that was pulling the uh, the plane across. It re- injured him rather severely. I don't I don't think it broke anything, but uh, from the from what I've read, it seems it seems like it was a, a pretty uh, sharp bang on his uh, on his right leg. He he sauntered through on the whole thing though, so that you know the the show must go on. The show must go on exactly. Good for him. And it's amazing watching him get up there uh, to the airplane and you realize, you see him, he's actually reaching in through the crack in the front of the windscreen. And you're just reminded again about how 
tight, how sort of claustrophobic those GB cockpits were. And, yeah. Uh, uh, and the idea that Billy Campbell did not like being in, you know, he didn't like being in a plane, yeah. let alone being in, in something like that is basically a, this is like a sarcophagus more than anything else. Yeah, exactly. You know, there's some racing airplanes of the day where, uh, you know, the, by the time the, the Z model uh, GB we're simulating here, uh, they've recreated for the film here, came along. I think they had moved away from this, but there were some. Uh, like we've got one in our museum, uh, raced by a guy named Steve Whitman, and uh, and basically he was screwed into the cockpit. He would get in, they would screw the same sort of uh, little cockpit canopy attachment on over his head, and I don't think he had any any easy way to get out from the inside. And that just uh, that just blows my mind. It's it's astonishing what the, I mean. You basically wear the airplane. Yeah, you really, really do. And then you put the uh, put the canopy on as a helmet. You mentioned uh, just a second ago, Jim, about uh, uh, Billy Campbell not liking it, even you know not really liking flying, not really liking to be uh, be in this uh, in the airplanes and stuff. But you know how he sucked it up and uh, and certainly seemed to get used to it. Um, there's a uh, there was a. a pseudo making of special uh tv special done for the rocketeer and i'm not sure if you've seen it yeah um and it's out there on youtube it's kind of a grainy vhs copy but uh it's about half making of and then uh, and then half sort of bill campbell walking us around talking to us about different flying machines and and in that one and you know, with the the vhs quality it's a little bit tough to tell but but by all accounts uh he gets some instruction and then he flies solo in a uh, powered parachute so he actually becomes uh, wow. He actually became a, a pilot, uh, you know, very briefly, and that's not uncommon. Those powered parachutes are very straightforward, and most people can solo them after about an hour of instruction. So that I had just watched that again recently. It had been a while since I'd seen it, and it was remarkable knowing here's this guy. He doesn't really like to fly, and now here he is uh, flying himself around in this uh, this lightweight contraption. Def- definitely a method actor. Yes, so, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and we get that uh, we get one more view of the uh, scintilla magneto switch as he uh, reaches in to, to uh, save the picture of Jenny. Sure, he's he's out of the airplane. Then he's you know he runs back just one more thing and you know and as he uh, um, super bits of trivia as he tears the picture away if you if you can hit the pause just right um, you know where so where the picture used to be uh, you get a better view of the the panel. There's your scintilla magneto switch over there on the left. And this is, you know, unless this was uh, not the replica, this was somehow the flying airplane, they just maybe dirted it up for this uh, this shot, which is possible. Um, it's amazing to me that this is a, an accurate and apparently functioning, you know, functioning instrument panel. Um, even little things like uh, her picture was covering the magnetic compass and then up to the up and to the right of that, you've got the directional gyro, which is sort of a uh, the, the compass and the directional gyro serve the same purpose to show you your heading, but they operate on different principles. So under certain circumstances, you can trust one and other circumstances, you trust the other and you sort of average it out. Um, so it wouldn't wouldn't be weird for him to fly around like this with the compass covered. But then underneath the compass, there's a little white card. And probably if you zoom way in on the Blu-ray thing, if you really really want to uh, get into this uh, you can sort of read and it says two rows of uh, of a table that says for and from and that's called a compass deviation card and any any airplane with a magnetic compass in it uh, will actually have one of these and what it is is when you install the magnetic compass in the airplane like this there's all the metal in the framework the engine and everything else so there are flaws there are errors in the compass 
is it's affected slightly by whatever you know lingering sort of paramagnetic properties might be in the engine so it's telling you when it says for and uh sorry it's not for and from it's for and steer excuse me so so it's saying if you want to f- if you want to fly due north steer and then the mechanic will write in the numbers so instead of 360 or zero degrees for due north because of the errors built into the airplane you actually have to steer you know 358 and then for you know for west to steer this for 180 steer you know 174 or something like that so they actually hand write in these numbers and then they would update them periodically as as the airplane ages or components are replaced so um to me as a as the vintage airplane nerd uh an interesting little detail that tells me this is probably or almost certainly uh, a real instrument panel whether we're we're back to the flying GBZ replica just for this tight shot in here or the, you know, the burning replica, they, they went to the effort to actually create a panel for it. I, I do notice that the uh, temperature is room temperature for the, uh, the, the yes. Yeah. The temperature gauge is down around what? Uh, 35, yeah, 35 yeah. C. We, we can't yeah. see the We can see the top of the cylinder head temperature gauge, but we can't see the indications there. Um, yeah. And then also to the right of that temperature gauge, there's a, an attitude indicator or an artificial horizon, and you notice that it's uh, it's caged, which is something uh, that runs on a gyroscope, and you usually would only cage that, and caging it just means basically almost like putting a parking brake on it, uh, just freezing it so that, that uh, the moving parts aren't moving currently, and you'd really only do that uh, when you're doing, primarily when you'd be doing aerobatics. Uh, because if you're up and down and tumbling and rolling and everything else, the gauge can can fall and uh, internally sort of fall and, and be damaged. So you would cage it to lock it sort of in the neutral position. And then once you're straight and level again, you would unlock it and go back to using it normally. So not sure why this would be caged, you know, after this uh, this emergency landing. Probably wouldn't have been. But but hey, that's okay. This is this is, I think, well less than a second of, no, of filming. I, I, was, I was wondering on the uh, on the two compasses. We're looking the magnetic compass is saying that it's right. east, and uh, yes. if you look at the other compass is pointing toward the north northwest. It's like is that a two eighty five? Yeah, I was just wondering. Like it, so, it seems to be extremely out of whack with each other. Uh, right. So uh, that one on the upper right, that's the directional gyro. And that's one that uh, operates again by, there's a vacuum pump that spins a gyroscope. And you imagine holding a gyroscope in your hand and how it wants to sort of stay in one place. So you can think about a gyroscope spinning behind that gauge. And as the airplane sort of moves around it, the indication turns and, and shows you your heading. So the problem with it is, is it uh, it's really accurate for a while and then it starts to wander. So whereas the magnetic compass is just magnetized uh, iron ore that points to the magnetic north pole wherever that happens to be at the time so what you're doing when you're flying is you take your directional gyro there in the upper right and then you set that to the compass and then you trust the directional gyro for a while because it's got different errors than the compass does then you notice okay i've been flying for half an hour 15 maybe 15 minutes half an hour a directional gyro and my compass don't agree so i turn that big black knob and reset the gyro back to the compass and then trust the gyro again so how's that for boring? Oh well, no, that's that's <laughs> that's right on top. I feel, <laughs> I feel much safer now. Yes, but uh, I, guess, I guess he just didn't have time to reset it while he was uh, banging into uh, Wilmer's car. Right now, you would have set it on you know before he took off, and for this relatively short flight, it shouldn't be you know anywhere near that uh, that far off. But uh, but again, all we're supposed to be really noticing in this scene is him saving 
saving uh, saving the life of Jennifer Connelly's picture. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So he he runs back and uh, does it does a turnaround, and uh, it just reminded me of a. uh, I know this is not related to (laughs) this is not related to aircraft, but this was one of those things that my driving instructor back in high school told uh, was talking about what to do when you're if you're in a car and your car dies on a on a railroad track. And uh, you try to start the car, try to try to get it going. But if you see any any uh, lights, you know you can try you can try one more time to start the car. But if you don't, get out of your car, run as far away as you can, and turn around, because uh, you just paid you you just paid a lot of money for that car, and you're going to watch a spectacular crash, and you don't want to <laughs> miss it. And so when you I don't want to miss it, when I when I saw uh, poor Cliff turn around to, to look at his GB, it's like, well, you know, he he spent four years and a whole lot of uh, time and effort on this plane. He might as well just turn around and take a good look at that crash that he just was in, and watch it go. Another little detail right there when when he turns back, you know, I've got the billboards behind him and stuff, but then off to the the far right of the frame. Uh, you see the charred uh, fuel filler cap. So it'd be a, a big, what am I trying to say here? Just sort of the big uh, big metal disc there that you yep. would you know, rotate and pull out to get access to, uh, to fuel the airplane. And obviously they're not, they're not burning and banging up uh, a flyable airplane, you know, not even, not even the real replica, so to speak, but uh, you know, nice little, uh, nice little detail right there. Yeah. Yeah. And in the background, just to point out that it's California, we've got sunmade sun made raisins, which are out of Fresno. It's a growers group. And, uh, growing up, I remember you either got sunmade raisins or, you know, when, when you got a brand that wasn't sunmade, you seriously doubted it. <laughs> like, I don't want these raisins, but it's amazing. This is one of the earliest forms of making a commodity, something that is better than other commodities. Raisins until, the uh, California Raisin Growers Association that owns SunMade in, in Fresno. Uh, raisins were raisins. People would just buy bags of raisins. But SunMade became a thing, a quality issue that you saw the SunMade lady and you said, this is uh, this is what I want. It's like uh, Purdue chickens are in the East. Or, you know, it's generally, it's a commodity item, but because of advertising, you, be, you got a, a huge section of the population, most of the population, to believe that their raisins were better than anybody else's raisins. And, right. Uh, well, it, it says right there on the sign, Jim, they're America's favorite. Yeah. So, and they were right. You know, <laughs> what else do I need to know? Truth in advertising. So no, that's uh, excellent. And then uh, the uh, the Gulf uh, billboard next to it. I've just always absolutely loved those colors. That uh, you know, that orange and the blue. And um, they sponsored a number of racing airplanes too. And they're in the uh, Smithsonian, uh, the Air and Space Museum, actually at the Udvar Hazy Center. They've got an airplane called the Gulf Hawk. Uh, which was uh, sort of a variant of the Grumman F3F as a biplane fighter that came before the the Grumman Wildcat. Very distinctive, fast, sort of bullet-shaped uh, bullet shaped biplane with retractable landing gear, kind of unusual. And the entire thing is that orange with those uh, those blue and white highlights, totally in gulf colors. It's beautiful. Wow, yeah. Well, it's, uh, and again, this, this whole connection between uh, the, the advertisers that are at the site uh, California and aviation. I mean, it, 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 there's so many subtle things in the art direction on this movie that just place you in a time and place. Uh, it's, it's great. And, and the best part is it doesn't overwhelm you with, uh, you know, the art direction doesn't overwhelm you on, on this movie. It just gives you the, the sense of place and, uh, really sets the scene. Right. Yeah. There's very few times throughout the entire film where you feel like they're being sort of overt and truly, uh, truly winking at the audience and, and, uh, you know, being sort of unsubtle about it. Uh, you know, later on we'll we'll talk about uh, 
uh, actually much later, we'll talk about a famous uh, rich industrialist uh, who's uh, a real character, a real person who's got a strong role in the film. And there's one scene there that uh, that feels a little bit sort of, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge over the top to me. But but otherwise, as you said, it's subtle. And, and sometimes it's not until you... Uh, uh, well, frankly, you obsess over it like we are right now that you really get in and, and, and appreciate it. You're, you're picking it up on some kind of subconscious level. But, uh, but boy, it's, it's not until you zoom in and, and really home in on those details that you, you really get it. Yeah, well, I, I think we should do a lot more of this, and we'll probably start doing that again tomorrow. So, uh, <laughs> I think so. Why, don't, why don't we have everybody, uh, everybody wipe all the, all the uh, mineral oil off themselves <laughs> come, <laughs> come back tomorrow. We'll, t- we'll talk about all these things. If, if you don't, if you don't want to wait, you can join us on several different uh, social media out there on Twitter. We're available at Rocketeer Minute. We are also available on Facebook, the uh, Bulldog uh, Cafe. Uh, the Rocketeers Bulldog Cafe is out there on Facebook where we get together and chat about these episodes. You can catch up on every single episode at the big website, rocketeerminute.com, and leave comments there. And uh, we also have a contact page there where if you want to send us some, some ideas or thoughts about this, uh, reach out to us there on uh, rocketeerminute.com. So uh, let's pick this up tomorrow, and we will find out who's going to clean up this mess, especially <laughs> that giant uh, pile of gasoline smoke going off in the distance. But uh, let's pick that up tomorrow here on the Rocketeer Minute. Until next time, over and out. Get him, kid.